and your testimony as well. Uh, we are in a series on the parables of Jesus Christ. A parable is simply an earthly story that Jesus tells. It has an eternal or a heavenly application. In many cases, Jesus does not tell us what that is. Uh, he spends the last year of his ministry speaking a lot in parables. And as we talked about when we started this series, part of that is to, re- to, to hide truth, and part of that is to reveal truth to his followers. So a couple of weeks ago, we started on some parables that specifically dealt with prayer, and then last week with Father's Day, we kind of jumped around a little bit. But I want to go back to some of the, the, the prayer parables, uh, because that's going to lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about, the parable we're going to look at this morning. Um, we talked about the idea of the parable of the friend at midnight. Remember that he showed up pounding on the door? And we talked about the idea of boldness in our prayers, that we need to boldly come into the presence of God. And then uh, we talked about the idea of the, the widow woman who kept coming before the unjust judge. And we talked about that idea of the idea of faithfulness, the idea of persistence, of, of coming to God with, with things, and that um, God would grant our request um, as a just God and as one who cared about his children. After that story, Jesus tells another parable. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's a somewhat of a familiar parable, but yet it has some implications not just for prayer, but for salvation and for um, the attitudes that we have to possess as believers. So before we get into it, let me give you a little bit of background. During this time in history... Uh, what would happen in Jerusalem or in Judea in this, this Palestine area is that they would have times of prayer uh, every day. Usually it was at 9 and 3. And what would happen is at the temple area, they would make a sacrifice. Usually the priest would then have a benediction. And then people would come forward and pray at the altar or pray to God. One of the things that you see in the life of Jesus is just before the crucifixion, the week, the, the Passion Week, remember when Jesus throws over the temple, uh, the tables in the temple? And one of the things that he says is, my father's house is a house of prayer. So prayer was a big part of the culture and the way that they worshiped them. So that's what's important to our story. Uh, so we're going to pick up the story, Luke chapter 18. Again, it follows the parable of the unjust uh, judge, and here's what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Literally, literally it's the sinner, not just a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, before we get into the story, let's make sure we kind of 
understand, have a good background and, and, and a good understanding of this passage. Um, first of all, let's talk about the Pharisee. Um, the Pharisee is one of uh, the religious leader groups of the time. Uh, there are three main groups, the Pharisees, the Essenes, um, and the Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees were a fairly respected group. Um, they believed in the, the written law of the Old Testament as well as the oral traditions of the rabbi. Uh, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in many of those things. So the Pharisees were fairly well respected as a group. The text says he stood up. Now, you don't have to make anything big deal out of that. Standing up was a way that they would pray. Uh, in that culture, that was not uncommon. So he stands up to pray. But what's unique is his prayer. In his prayer, he addresses God one time. He talks about himself five times. And it says that he prayed to himself. So we get this idea that uh, he's standing somewhat close to the front. And we get the idea that he's praying to himself, but it's loud enough that other people can hear. And what's interesting here is he starts off by saying, I'm not like other people. And two of the groups that he mentions are um, thieves, robbers, and adulterers, which were two violations of the Ten Commandments. So basically what he's saying is, you know what, I'm, I'm better than everybody else. I'm not like these people around here who rob, again, tax collectors, um, and adulterers. And he uses a term here, and he says, and I am not like this tax collector. That's an interesting word that he uses in that passage. In fact, uh, that word is only used one other time in Luke. And it's used when they are talking about Jesus at the crucifixion in a derogatory manner. Basically, what he is saying is, I am not like him who is less than nothing, is literally the idea. So he's, he's looking at himself in all of his goodness and all of his greatness and how he is so much better than everybody. And it's interesting because it says that he stood at a distance. Um, there is some thought here that one of the things that happened in this culture is the, the people who had money, the people who were important, got up near the front. And actually, there are people who it's like, you know what, you shouldn't be here. And they would actually sometimes, while the priest was ministering and, and offering the benediction, they would actually sometimes take people and say, um, excuse me, can you come with me? We need you to stand over here. We don't want you up that close. Now, I'm not saying people in the back are worse than people in the front. Um, you know, I know the back seats here are premium seats. Uh, but it's the idea of uh, he's standing off the tax collector is standing off. We're going to talk about more about it in a second. But he's standing off because he doesn't feel like he should even be there. Meanwhile, the Pharisee is standing there and he says, I'm so glad that I'm not like him, who's less than nothing. And then he goes on to list what he does. And he says, I fast twice a week. Now, here's what you need to understand. If you're a Jew living during this time, the Old Testament required you to fast one time a year. That was on the Day of Atonement. That was it, once a year. Some people in this culture 
a lot of the Pharisees, a lot of the religious leaders wanted to impress people. So they would fast twice a week. Uh, usually, in this culture, it was Monday and Thursdays. There's all kinds of thought for that. Uh, one, th- one, one realm of thinking says that it's Monday and Thursday because those are the two days that are farthest from, from Sabbath. Uh, one realm of thought was that Mondays and Thursdays were market days. So that's when everybody was buying food to eat, and you got the Pharisees standing there not eating and pressing everybody. Uh, one realm of thought is that Moses went up to the mountain on Monday, and he came down on a Thursday, so those were the two. There's all kinds of bizarre stuff about this. But typically, if you fasted two days a week, it was Monday and Thursday in this culture. But here's how he prays. God, I want you to know, I fast 102 times a year. Not five, not 10, not 20, not 30. I fast 102 times every single year. You know that, right, God? Huh? Four. What's that? Hundred and fifty. Hundred and four. Yeah. Okay. And you got to be at supper at lunch when they go through the whole thing. No. Uh, hundred and four. Hundred and four times a year. Uh, actually, it might be a hundred and five if you add in Day of Atonement. Uh, but anyway. So, you get the idea. Not once, but over a hundred. Okay? And then he adds, I tithe. And what you have to understand is the way he tithed. The Old Testament law said you tithe the tenth of what you earned. So, let's say you have a thousand dollar paycheck. Then you would take a hundred dollars and you would give it to the temple. You would tithe the tenth. This guy's saying... I tithe a tenth of everything that I get. So, in other words, what he's saying is, let's say he gets $1,000 a week. He gives $100 of that. Then let's say later that week, he goes out and buys a $5,000 car. He now gives $500 of that to the thing. He's tithing on what he's spending as well as what he's earning. I mean, this guy is impressive. And he wants everyone to know how impressive he is, especially in contrast to the tax collector. The tax collector, on the other hand, look at his attitude. His attitude is, I don't even deserve to be in this place. So he makes it not into the auditorium, he makes it to the lobby. In fact, he's standing outside in the little cubbyhole by the door. He's as far away from the front as he can be because he doesn't even feel worthy to walk into the building. And he's standing there. And it's interesting because what it says is it says that he beats his chest. Okay? Uh, it's, we don't have a lot of references to this in the Bible, but we do have one. Uh, the other time, and, and let me give you a little bit of background. What happens is the idea in this culture, was that the heart was wicked, okay? And so when people were, were in grief or when people were uh, in humility, the idea was, was this kind of thing, of, uh, of it. The idea of beating your heart was the idea of I'm beating the evil out. It is so evil. The other time that we see this word used in the New Testament 
is, is that the crucifixion of Jesus, when people are so overwhelmed, they beat their chest because of the evil that they are seeing taking place. It's that concept. And so he's standing back there and he's crying out. He will not look up. All he can do is look down and he's, and he's crying out to God. And what's interesting is what he says. Because one of the things that he says is, God, be merciful to me. He uses an Old Testament concept of the mercy seat of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, in fact, this idea, this, 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 this word that he uses is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about the idea that Jesus is the great high priest making the sacrifice for us at the mercy seat. In other words, what this guy does is he says this, I am the sinner, and God, I am asking you for mercy. The same kind of mercy that the priest had when he went into the Old Testament to make sacrifice for Israel. I'm asking you for that kind of favor. I don't deserve it. There's nothing in me that should get it, but I'm still going to ask you. And then what Jesus does in this passage is he says, I tell you, he is now speaking as God. And this is going to get him in trouble later because they ask him, who has power to forgive sins other than God? But one of these things that he says, I tell you, this man went away justified. Now, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this whole concept, but this is huge. This is absolutely huge. I don't, when, when I teach and preach, I don't spend a lot of time going through Greek words and, 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 and helping you um, you know, understand them and pronounce them and, and all that kind of thing. But I got, you got to bear with me just for a few minutes on this one, okay? Um, when Jesus says this man is justified, there's two things that are really important in the Greek language in this word that he uses. It's what we call a perfect passive participle. Here's what it means. The, perfect, the passive means this. This is something that was acted upon him. It's not something he did. So a passive idea means that he has no part of this. This is something that is done to him. He is passive in the, in the thing. Okay? The perfect part of it means this. This is an action that is done now, which has future implications into the future. In other words, the idea is he was justified. God did something for him he could not do on his own. And God did it at that moment instantaneously that had long-term impact and effects. It wasn't he's justified now and maybe he'll be justified later. It's he's justified now and he will forever be justified. It, it, it has that kind of context with it. And so when Jesus says he he is justified. This man is justified. That is huge. Um, that is huge because what he's saying is, look, this man is now right with God. This man is now God's child. And then he goes on to say even more, this man is getting into heaven before you. 
Now, wait a minute. We're talking about a guy who fasts a lot. And we're talking about a guy who gives a lot. And we're talking about a guy who's at church a lot. You know what this passage teaches? Good people don't go to heaven. Justified people do. Good people don't go to heaven. Justified people do. This guy did was doing all the right stuff, but for all the wrong reasons, and he was depending upon himself. And God said, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. So you have this incredible story. Uh, just throw out a whole bunch of observations before we get into practical things. One guy talks to himself about himself. The other guy talks to God about himself. Um, One guy focuses on the sins of other people. The other one focuses on his own sin. One guy is condemned because of his pride. The other is exalted because of his humility. You see all kinds of ideas here. Both men leave the temple and go home that day. One goes home differently. The other might as well stay in bed. Really. Uh, Both men in in this situation come to worship God, but only one really does, and one ends up being justified. The other does not. So let's talk about some takeaways, some things for us this week. Uh, I'm going to talk big picture, and then I'm going to get specific of what the passage, I think, is actually focused on. But you've heard me say before, Scripture always has layers to it. So there's the surface stuff, and we'll talk about that at the end, but I want to talk about, as you start to peel it away, some layers for us. One of the things that I think you see in this passage is the attitude that they have when they come to worship. One person really looks at his heart before God. The other person comes to worship looking at everybody else. What happens is if we're not careful, we can be like the Pharisee in that we come to church and we're like, you know what, I sure hope my spouse is listening because he really needs this or she really needs that. I hope my kids are paying attention. You know, I hope that person three rows in front of me is paying attention because I know they need this. You know, well, I tell you what, so-and-so's not here, but I'm going to send them the link so they can watch it because they need it. Isn't that easy to do? Isn't it easy to come to church and not apply it to us? That Here's my question. If we come to church and we don't apply it to us, how are we any different from the Pharisee? You see, God honors the tax collector because the tax collector comes to a worship service and applies it to himself. He looks at his heart before God. That's the fundamental purpose of what we're doing here. Do we want to worship God? Yes. But we want to take the word of God and we want to apply it to our lives. Do I hope my spouse listens? Yes. But it's not about my spouse. It's about me applying the Word of God to my life. 
That's why you hear me say over and over again, we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. If we just hear, we're no different than the Pharisee. We walk in, we think it's all about us, we make it all about us, but we don't apply any of it to us, and we walk out the same as when we walked in. And I think there's a great lesson here for us, because particularly those of you who've been around Christianity for a long time, the longer we come, the easier it is to think we've got our act together. The easier it is to think, well, you know what? I mean, I tithe, and I went to church, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I do da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, stop. What about your heart before God? Are all of those things important? Yes. Are they doing anything to get you to heaven? No. They're building your relationship, your fellowship with God, but they're not the basis for your relationship with God. This guy was banking on all that stuff. And Jesus said, look, if you're going to bank on all that stuff, no, you don't, then it doesn't count. And I think it's important for us when we walk in here. You know, if you go in there, you walk in here, well, look, Pastor, you know, I mean, I know know these other people, they really need this. Guess who really needs it? Okay? And we've got to be careful here because it is easy for us to go down this road. And so every time we walk in this building, every time we open the Word of God, every time we, we allow God to speak to our hearts and we ask ourselves, how can I apply it to my life? It's about my relationship with the Lord. It's about my fellowship with the Lord. It's about me honoring what God lays on my heart. And that's important for us. So we have, first of all, this idea that, you know, because that's what you see in the life of the Pharisee. He wanted to apply it to everybody else, not himself. Second idea, you see this idea of humility. Um, Can I say sometimes that as Christians, I think we miss this big time? We become so convinced of our position. Um, By the way, it's one of the things that I think has, I I think it's one of Satan's tools this past year or any time there's a political year. I think it's one of Satan's tools that we become so obnoxious about what we believe that we cross the line from humility into pride. And we've got to be careful there. Because one of the things that you see with this guy is he is so proud about all of his stuff. It's all about him. And I think there has to be a level of humility with us. If the world was really going to see Christ, is that not what was appealing to Jesus? About Jesus when he comes to this earth? He could have come as king. He is king, but he, he's born in a, in a manger. Uh, he could have demanded anything he wanted. Does he? No. Why? Because you see a humility in Christ. That's what Philippians talks about when Paul says... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. I think one of the things that's lacking in Christianity today is a humility. And we have to find that line where you go, well, if I'm humble, everybody will walk all over me. You mean like they did Jesus? You know? Yet there's a humility about the way he talked the way he presented this thing. Were there times that he stood up? Yes. Yes. But look at what he stood up against. 
It's interesting to me. You know what he stands up against? The religious leaders of the day. Not the politics of the day. I, that's, that's fascinating to me. Um, not even the morality of the day. He stands up against the immorality among religious people. That's what he focuses on. And, and I see this over and over again. There's a humility that you see. Um, the Old Testament says it this way. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Be clothed with humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. All right, I'm going to start. I'm going to, I'm going to meddle for a minute. Guys, I understand the rule culture. I understand that we like to be able to say, I did it myself. I like, I understand the idea of, I don't need anybody's help. I can do this. Okay? I, ha- I have a master's degree in this. All right? I, I get it. I'm that way too. But are you ready for this? You got two choices. You either learn humility and allow people to help, or God will put you in a situation where you have to be humble and take help. It's your call how it plays out. My experience has been this. It's a whole lot easier for me to learn early to ask for help than it is to say, no, I can do it on my own. And this week, um, a thing popped up on my Facebook. You know how they do that? Five years ago today, bing, 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 bing. Well, it popped up, and it was a reminder of this very thing. Uh, I decided that I didn't need people to help me pour cement. So I looked at my lovely wife and said, we can do this. And this is a slab between our garage and our house. And then I decided... I wanted to do something fancy, so I wanted another little slab connecting my driveway to that slab, and it was a curve. And so rather than calling for people, and again, we were all pouring concrete, we were all doing this. Rather than call people, I just said, honey, we can do this on our own. I didn't even ask my kids. Okay. Were you there? Oh, okay. Big impression. Um, No, um... So the three of us did it. As we started to pour, it started to rain. Now, this area had been designed with a drain in it. So all of the cement sloped to the drain. It was designed that way. After it was hard, it was designed that way. So this was a fiasco. Everybody yelling at each other, everybody doing this, grab this, do this, let's see if we can get a tarp on it, try to get the water away from it, blah, 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 blah. And Facebook was kind enough this week to remind me, ask for help. And I sent it to the family, and I said, hey, you guys remember this? And it's like, oh, do I remember this? 
you know, and Gene had a whole lot of really not so nice things to go, yes, I do remember this, and you should have asked for help, basically, is where we were. You know what? God will humble us if we don't humble ourselves. Because he loves us. And he wants us to learn the one thing that's hard for all of us to learn. We need each other. The Christian life was not designed to be run solo. That's why we have a church. That's why we connect. That's why we get together. That's why we fellowship. That's why we build relationships. Why? Because we're designed to do this together, not individually. And one of the things that you see in the story, you see the difference between a humble attitude and an attitude of pride. Last thing that you see in this story is the idea of salvation is purely of God. If you think you can earn your way, or if you think you can do enough stuff to impress yourself, in fact, here's what's interesting. If you keep going in the book of Luke, chapter 18, you know what the next story is about? Little children coming to Jesus and having the faith of a little child. You know what the next story is about after that? A rich young ruler who comes to Jesus who says, hey, I've got all my act together. And over and over again, Jesus uses these stories to illustrate this fact, that this story illustrates that, look, if you're going to put your confidence and your trust in yourself, you're always going to fall short of God's standard. You have to have the attitude of that, that tax collector who said, God, I need your mercy. I can't do anything. I can't do anything to make up for how much I must stuff up. And Jesus says, it's yours. Wait a minute, don't I have to go and fast like at least as many times as that guy? No, it's not about that. Don't I have to do all the things that he's doing? No, it's not about that. And I think we miss that. I think sometimes we forget the fact that, look, God saved us. And he justified us. And he gave us that standing. And it is a one-time deal where he gives us that standing, and it has continuing impact in our lives. We don't need to get proud about what we're doing. Instead, we need that humility, that attitude that just says, you know what, Lord, thank you. Uh, You know, we're about ready in a little bit, we're going to have communion. That's exactly what we do in communion. We just simply say, thanks, God, I don't deserve any of this. We're just like that tax collector. But that's the only way that you get to God. And that's what's important that all of us understand. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't understand that, please, we, talk to one of us. You know, you go, well, you know, I don't have my act together. Great. You're in great company. You're in great company. Well, I don't, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't even have walked in here today. You're in great company. None of us should But we did because God has justified us. He has given us eternal life. This guy walked out with forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God, a clean slate, and an opportunity to start all over. Why? Because he asked. Because he had a hard attitude of humility and said, God, I can't do this on my own help. So I end this morning with this. The Pharisee and the publican teach us that good people do not go to heaven. Justified people do. 
The only way to forgiveness of sins is through Christ, not your good works. In humility, you come to God, asking for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. God makes you his child. It forever changes your relationship to him. Two men went to worship God that day. Only one walked away justified. Which one reflects your life? Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, we want to apply. We want to be grateful for all you've done. For those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, thanks so much. Lord, for whatever reason, you allowed us to be forgiven, to be justified, to be able to stand before you in your righteousness and spend eternity forever with you. Lord, for those who don't have that confidence and that assurance, but you help them to understand this incredible gift that you offer to anyone who's humble enough to ask. Lord, use us this week. May people see Christ in all we do. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um,